This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Avatars, Inc., a new anthology edited by Anne Vandermeer, featuring stories by authors such as James S.A. Corey, Ken Liu, and Pat Cadigan. Read all 24 stories for free right now over at avatars.inc. So that's avatars.inc. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 405 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Ross Douthit. He's an op-ed writer for the New York Times, a movie reviewer for National Review, and the author of nonfiction books such as Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics, and To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, The Decadent Society, which explores the way that humanity's sci-fi future fell victim to cultural, political, and technological stagnation. And today's show is brought to you by Avatars, Inc., a new anthology edited by Anne Vandermeer, created by Eric Desotnik, and brought to you by XPRIZE and All Nippon Airways. The book is set in a sci-fi future in which robotic avatar systems have explored the furthest reaches of the solar system, and now an effort is being made to retrieve the memory cards from those avatars and return them to Earth. Each story in the anthology relates the contents of one of those memory cards, and together the stories paint a vivid picture of a 21st century future full of progress and adventure. Avatars Inc. includes fiction by authors such as James S.A. Corey, Ken Liu, Pat Cadigan, Charles Yu, Jeffrey Ford, Robert Reed, Paul McCauley, and Aliette Bodard. And you can read all 24 stories for free right now over at avatars.inc. And if you want to join the adventure, you can also write your own story set in the Avatars Inc. universe. Avatars Inc. will choose one winning story of 2,500 to 3,500 words to upload to their memory archive, with the winner receiving a trip for two to Expo 2020 in Dubai, as well as a gear package that includes a GoPro Hero 7 camera, Sony noise-canceling headphones, a 32-gigabyte Kindle Paperwhite, a Joner Universal Translator, and more. And again, you can learn more over at avatars.inc. So that's avatars.inc. All right, and so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Ross Douthit. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So you said in an interview that Tolkien was your favorite author growing up. So how did you start reading him? Probably my dad read him to me um, when I was, you know, the Hobbit at age seven or and then Lord of the Rings at age nine or so. Um, and then, yeah, and then I became sort of, you know, a kind of fantasy nerd, I guess, in my teens. It was the golden age of Robert Jordan. So I went Tolkien and then David Eddings, Terry Brooks, Robert Jordan. It, it was the mid nineties. Um, so that was sort of the, the fantasy zone in those days. So what made Tolkien your favorite? Um, I mean, probably. A combination of the fact that what he was doing was, you know, mostly better <laughs> than than a lot of the imitators. Um, maybe more so than I realized at the time. I'm not sure that the first time I read The Sword of Shannara, I quite realized that it was literally a beat by beat remake <laughs> of the of the arc of Lord of the Rings. Um, but yeah, but that and also just, you know, it was. The whatever your gateway into a genre is tends to be um, tends to be pretty important to you. So I was, I mean, I always, I was never sort of the deepest sort of Tolkien nerd. I I have not read the entirety of the Silmarillion, which is sort of the you know the actual dividing line between <laughs> mere mere Tolkien fans and true Tolkien nerds. Um, and I remember after we going with a bunch of guys who I would have not thought of as fantasy nerds to see one of the Peter Jackson movies. And um, someone said, oh, Ross is a big Tolkien nerd. But then the guy next to me said, oh, have you read The Silmarillion? <laughs> and I and I had to admit that I'd only read all of the appendices to Return of the King. And I got I got kind of bogged down in The Silmarillion, I have to admit. So. Yeah, I, I've never read The Silmarillion, so I'm not going to. That's good. And you have a whole fantasy and science fiction podcast. So, you know. You've done okay. <laughs> so did you have any sense of Tolkien at that time as sort of a conservative Christian writer? Did that play any role in your um, him appealing to you? I mean, only in the sense that I probably intuited that he had a kind of 
medievalist aesthetic and a certain kind of um, anti-modernism, and I probably have some of that in my temperament that also explains why um, I ended up becoming a Catholic. But I wasn't sitting there, certainly when my dad was reading um, The Lord of the Rings to me at age 11, I had no sense of sort of the theological resonances of like Galadriel and the Virgin Mary or anything like that. Um, but I like to joke since I am in, um, you know, political punditry and conservative political punditry that, you know, there are sort of two, the two fantasies that lead people into conservatism are Ayn Rand's novels and, uh, and Lord of the Rings and what kind of conservative you are depends on which kind of novel you read. Or so, which kind of novel you love best, I guess. So did you read Ayn Rand's? I did. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I think that, that if you treat, um, Atlas Shrugged and Fountainhead as science fiction novels about an alien species that marginally resembles the human race, then they're actually pretty entertaining. Um, but as sort of manifestos for a political philosophy, I was never, I was never really convinced. How about other uh, other science fiction writers? I mean, you mentioned the fantasy authors that you were into, but how about were you reading science fiction books as well? I was. I mean, I was more um, I was more fantasy than sci-fi, but I read most of Asimov. Um, I I read Dune and still love Dune, even though, as with the Silmarillion, I couldn't actually get through all the sequels. So there too, I will occasionally meet like true Dune fanboys who will say, Oh, you couldn't, you didn't read Heretics of Dune. Well, <laughs> you know, you're missing out when he, when he turns into a sandworm, you know, that's the real peak. So, um, so I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't sort of all the way in, but Asimov, I read, you know, I read, all, I think I read all the foundation novels, including the prequels and, um, you know, the robot murder mysteries, uh, Caves of Steel, and so on. So I probably read, like, I mean, Asimov wrote, like, 15,000 novels, but <laughs> I, I wrote, I read some substantial percentage of his, of his books, I'd say. Yeah, well, and reading all the Dune novels has become exponentially more difficult over the last well, uh, decade or so. Right, yeah, now you have, right, it's the, 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 um, the endless Butlerian Jihad prequels and sequels and so on, which I, I have never, I've never even touched. Um, but then I was also, you know, again, within limits, a Star Wars guy. I had, um, I had a really close friend in middle school who was more of a Trek guy. And I sort of through him experienced Trek, Trek fandom, but was never sort of fully immersed in it. And then at a certain point decided that, um, I was more of a Star Wars guy, which I think isn't surprising given my preference for fantasy because Star Wars is basically a fantasy novel set in space rather than true sci-fi, I think. But, you know, I read the, you know, I read the Timothy Zahn, um, books and I read about as far in, as the extended universe went, um, before I went to college. And then I figured I needed to be you know, slightly more presentable for dating actual women. So <laughs> maybe, maybe some of the stuff, some of that slipped away. But at that point, I was also, I mean, that was, I was reading, um, Game of Thrones before anyone outside the fantasy world knew what Game of Thrones was. And I remember a moment in college finding a couple of fellow nerds who were really into, uh, I think it was Storm of Swords that just came out. And little did we know that, you know, this was 2002 and literally 18 years later, we would only be two, two books further advanced in, in the saga. Yeah. You know, I read Game of Thrones in 2001. And, uh, so it's been a long, long wait for me. And, uh, I saw a thing one time somebody had graphed, you know, as a curve, you know, they had plotted the release date of each book, you know, versus time and then predicted when the books would be coming out. Uh, you know, in the sort of logarithmic curve. And it predicted that, uh, the, ne the next book would come out in 2020. And that was, you know, 12 years ago or something. And that time that just seemed absurd. But now, uh, I'm just is hoping it, it comes out in 2020. Is it, is it going to come out in 2020? You must have some sort of insider's knowledge about this. I would bet any amount of money it's not, but, uh. Okay. <laughs> any, any, all right. <laughs> that's a strong, that's a strong bet. Yeah. I, I remember, um, that the 
it, it's a dance with dragons, right? Yeah, that's the most, that's the last one. That actually came so out, yeah. That actually came out. So that came out, um, the year our first child was born. And I remember, you know, really looking forward to it and reading it as like a break from the rigors of parenting over our summer vacation in Maine. But then getting to the end and being incredibly disappointed because I felt like he had sort of stopped short of three separate climaxes. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, they'll come in the next book. And here we are that, that, you know, the baby is now a nine year old girl. We're about to have our fourth child. <laughs> and, and still nobody knows, um, you know, what actually, what actually happened in the Battle of Winterfell or anything like that. Um, at least in the Martin canon, I guess we know in the, in the Benioff and Weiss offshoot, but, um, but I've decided that doesn't count. Yeah. Well, I don't want to go too far down this road because this is sort of the black hole that all conversations among nerds inevitably gets, gets sucked into is, uh, in, into, into rage, right. Rage at the, at the final <laughs> season of the TV show. Yes. But, but so you, for me, for me, it's a change of pace though. You know, in my, in my day job, Nobody really lets me rant about George R. R. Martin, so, um, you know. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to ask you that. So have you written, I know you've written some, you've re reviewed Star Wars and things like that, but how much do you get to write about science fiction kind of stuff? Uh, in your I mean, I think, I think, I think there's a reasonable limit on what you can do. I, so I, I write my column for the Times and then I, I sort of moonlight as a movie critic for National Review, um, which means I see a movie every two weeks because that's how often the, print magazine comes out and that lets me do things like review you know the latest star wars movie and so on um and i think that's helpful for the newspaper column because it gives me at least some sense maybe relative to other 40 year old political journalists of what's actually happening in pop culture but i feel like i can only really write an actual column about um i mean not just sort of fantasy or science fiction per se but um, novels or TV, you know, every, every four to six months or so. So I wrote one about, I wrote a piece about fantasy. I offered my take on fantasy when the Game of Thrones, when the final season aired. And then I can do, I wrote a piece about Watership Down, which sort of is in the zone between fantasy and children's literature and adult literature. So I can do it occasionally, but it, you know, I think my editors would raise an eyebrow. If, <laughs> Every week, I was like, "Oh, you know the the new Robin Hobb novel. Let me tell you about that." Have you noticed any change over the years in how receptive editors are to science fiction related stuff? Like, can you do more now than you could when you started? I mean, I'd say you know, I that I came of age as a journalist and pundit as nerd and geek culture was sort of taking over pop culture, so I didn't. I remember the days when it was sort of considered déclassé and something for, you know, guys in their parents' basements, but that was my teenage life, and in my adult life, it's been sort of pretty normal and mainstream. So I'm not sure it's changed that much in the last 10 years. I think once you had the one-two punch of, or the one-two-three punch maybe, of Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and then the rise of Marvel, it became pretty established that it was no weirder to write about sci-fi and fantasy than it would be to write about like a Bruce Willis movie or something. It's just sort of, you know, the weirdness would be writing about pop culture too much when you're a political columnist, but um, sci-fi and fantasy sort of is pop culture now in a way that was not at all the case when I was 15. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the new book. It's called The Decadent Society. And if I had to sort of summarize the thesis, I would say that it's people started having fewer kids and that led to an aging population, which led to a less bold, ambitious uh, society. And so we never got things like lunar settlements and things like that. Is that would you say is that a fair? I mean, that's a good that's a that's a good that's a good capsule summary. I mean, I think that I try in the book not to. Not to pin too much blame on one particular thing that, I mean, the idea of decadence as I'm describing it is that a lot of different forces are entangled. So it's not just people chose to have fewer kids and all the other trends I'm talking about flowed from that. It's that there's this sort of entanglement between 
the economic slowdown that we've had in the developed world since the 1970s, the fact that technological progress has been concentrated more and more just in um, technologies of sort of communication and simulation, and the fact that our political systems seem sort of gridlocked beyond repair, and then the fact, like you said, that people have fewer kids, society gets older, it gets less dynamic and creative, and all these things are sort of in feedback loops with each other. So, you know, you have a technological slowdown, so you don't get as much growth, so people, you know, find it harder to afford having kids, so they have fewer kids, so society gets less dynamic and creative, so you have less technological growth. And I don't think you can just pull out one thread and say, this one thing caused it all. Um, but I am a little bit of a demographics obsessive, so and I think you probably picked up on that in starting starting with the fewer kids problem. But you think that there is sort of a an alternative scenario where we would have lunar settlements in twenty twenty if society had been a little bit different? Maybe, but maybe it runs the other way. Maybe if it had been slightly easier to build lunar settlements, other aspects of society here on Earth would be a little different, right? Because I mean I don't want to make I don't want to make wild claims for what the space program could have accomplished, um, you know, across the 1980s and 1990s. I mean, there are some pretty good reasons, um, the absence of amazing natural resources on the moon, the absence of a Cold War competition, why we didn't build moon bases. And it might be that because of that, because we didn't get the new frontier we were promised, People became more pessimistic, more disillusioned, less confident in the future, um, and various political and economic and cultural problems followed here on Earth. Um, I mean, I'd like to believe that it was just sort of a failure of will and imagination. I do think there's been a certain failure of will and imagination, but you also have to recognize that, you know, there are some excellent reasons why um, you know, we aren't in the Star Trek future or even the 2001 A Space Odyssey future yet. I mean, you talk about in the book uh, people you call techno-utopians like Kevin Kelly. Um, I'm probably in that camp to some degree. But could you say, like, what do you think is the main thing that techno-utopians are getting wrong right now? I mean, I think, I mean, to start, I don't, I think the techno-utopian idea, the ambition, while I, you know, have some moral skepticism about some potential technological breakthroughs and what they'd mean for society, I think the spirit that Kevin and others represent is generally a good thing. I think what they what they have tended to get wrong over the last over the course of my lifetime basically is just an overestimation of how fast technological progress is actually happening. Um, and how close we are to certain breakthroughs and certain frontiers. And it seems to me that, you know, there is sort of very clear technological progress in figuring out how to zap information around the world and how to conv create convincing simulations of reality. But when you compare sort of expectations around genetic engineering or alternative energy or a whole host of things, relative to what people expected in the 60s or even what people expected in the first dot-com boom in the 1990s, I think there's been a lot of disappointment. Um, and that maybe wrongly conditions me to suspect that the same will be true of, you know, some of the strong AI predictions. Um, you know, when I, but one of the first people I ever interviewed as a journalist was um, Ray Kurzweil for the, I was a very, very, very junior person for the Atlantic and we were doing some sort of ideas feature. And so I read most of Courtois' predictions from this would have been in the 1990s. And, you know, some things have been borne out, but a lot of sort of the full Kurzweil, you know, we can live forever in my lifetime, upload our consciousness stuff hasn't happened. And I'm skeptical that it's going to happen on any kind of near-term horizon. And I feel like that's been true in a lot of areas, again, outside certain aspects of um, internet technology. Right. I mean, I'm certainly, I would say I'm more skeptical than a lot of people kind of in this space of the idea that we're going to upload our consciousness to the cloud anytime soon, or that um, AI is going to conquer humanity anytime soon. Um, but you do, you sort of talk in the book about how are we approaching a technological ceiling where there are really aren't that many amazing new discoveries to be made. 
And I mean, that may be true, but it just seems like just the, even if there aren't any new discoveries, just the applications that could be done with genetic engineering and AI um, with, with what we know is possible now, it seems like could completely remake society without really positing anything too dramatic in terms of new discoveries. Do you, do you agree with that or disagree with that? I mean, I think there's, I'm not sure about the distinction between discovery and application, I guess. Um, I mean, in the book, I sort of offer two scenarios, right? One is that there's some kind of ceiling, as you say, and we're approaching some kind of limit on what, at least in this moment, we can discover. The other possibility, which I'm totally open to, is that we're in a kind of bottleneck where we're doing a lot of cutting edge research and we just haven't figured out how to apply it. Um, and so it might be that, yeah, in that case, you could argue we're still making discoveries. We just we just haven't worked all the way to their application. Um, but I think for sort of the man on the street, that might be a distinction without a difference. Like if researchers are gaining a lot more knowledge about the human genome, but haven't figured out how to, you know, treat on a large scale various genetic diseases, then I think a lot of average people would say, well, we haven't made the discovery yet. They wouldn't say we haven't gotten the application yet. Um, but yeah, I'm totally open to the possibility that that this period I'm describing as decadent is not, you know, is sort of a lull, a space in between periods of greater innovation and transformation where we'll look back and say, you know, the, you know, research on CRISPR was sort of in its infancy in 2017 or 2018, but by 2048, it had, you know, radically altered human health, well-being, life expectancy, even intelligence and so on. I'm, I, I think that's a possibility. But I do think I'm trying to push back in the book against the assumption that this is already happening, right? So I write about politics and we spend a lot of time um, in the last year arguing about Andrew Yang, right, and his big proposal to do a universal basic income on the grounds he argued that robots are about to take everybody's jobs, basically, that automation is about to have this incredibly disruptive impact on Western society. And that might be about to happen, but it isn't happening insofar as we can see it in the data on economic productivity. You don't see the shifts in productivity you would expect if we were living through a true automation revolution. And I think there are a lot of examples of that where people look at the transformations in tech and assume that they're bleeding over into the rest of society. And in many cases, it's more that, you know, tech has a lot of money and tries to transform the rest of society. And the result is a little more like Theranos or WeWork than it is a true revolution. But I mean, if the, um, if say Andrew Yang is correct about the impact of automation, is there a conservative response in terms of policy that's not universal basic income? I mean, there are presumably some, I mean, it, it, there's different views of what it means to be a conservative, right? And I think a lot of people, again, there's sort of that Ayn Rand, J.R.R. Tolkien distinction, but there, there are definitely a lot of people on the libertarian side of things who would say, you know, what Yang isn't getting is that this disruption will itself create either new opportunities for leisure and human fulfillment or just, you know, a more automated society will be more efficient and more productive and generate more wealth and create new industries that we haven't even thought of and people will be employed in them and so on. So that's, that's sort of one answer. But I think the sort of, you know, maybe the Tolkienian, well, actually, the Tolkienian answer would be that we shouldn't automate, <laughs> right? Because, <laughs> look, I mean, Lord of the we Rings should, We should is, get rid of the automation we already have. Yeah. Right, and and Lord of the Rings is just a pretty anti-tech book that, you know, that Saruman, what Saruman does in his workshop is bad news, and, you know, the Sauron is the great industrial power and so on. Um, but I think there is, there is a there is a conservatism that um, that would be open to something like what Yang is proposing and that would sort of see some kind of um, social benefit as a necessary way to transition to the new economy. Um, but then there's also, I think, you know, I think there's a slightly dystopian aspect to the, the sort of the infatuation with basic income as, as an idea if you assume that the world is basically going to be permanently divided into these sort of, this sort of extremely successful class of haves and then 
this large class of essentially expendable workers or have-nots, then the UBI in certain ways just looks like its own kind of serfdom. It's like, you know, well, we're tossing, we're tossing a little money from, you know, the tower tops that AI and robotics have built. Um, and that way the people down below aren't going to rise up and revolt. And this is not how Yang sold it. I mean, Yang, I think, had a, had a strong pitch for the idea that this enables human flourishing and creativity. But my, my worry, and this shows up in the decadent society too, is that, you know, you could imagine a world that basically continues to make progress just in the realm of sort of simulation and virtual entertainment. And you could imagine some milder version of Yang's future coming to pass and then society basically, you know, doing some version of the Wally spaceship where, um, <laughs> people, the sort of expendable people are given a little money, given really awesome video games and, um, sort of left to, uh, left to their own devices. I mean, a lot of the arguments you make in the book about our society having fallen into decadence, I'm really sympathetic to, especially in terms of um, government dysfunction and those sorts of things. But the the bone I really have to pick is when you say that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is uh, an indicator of uh, cultural <laughs> decadence. Yes. Tell me why I'm wrong. Well, so and I'm not even that big of a superhero fan. And I've personally kind of gotten bored with the Marvel movies and I haven't watched one in a while. But it just seems like it's a, um, you know, there wasn't even any, you know, the first Marvel movie was Iron Man in 2008. I feel like before that, most people never even heard of Iron Man. And um, it just seems to me like it's this amazing, creative accomplishment to have so many movies that have been uh, critically well-received and commercially successful and all fit together. And just looking at um, other you know, they tried to do something similar with the DC universe. They tried to do something similar uh, with Universal monster movies and have have shown that it's not an easy thing to do what Marvel's done. So I just think it's a, it's a, a great accomplishment. I mean, if they're still making them in 20 years, that would be more to me a, an argument for decadence. But to have a run from 2008 to 2018 or whatever, uh, Infinity War, of adapting this... Uh, sort of great American mythology using the latest technology. I, I just think it's something I'm glad that they're doing it, even if, you know, even if it's not something I'm, as I said, that I'm wildly uh, passionate about, but uh, it just seems like a real accomplishment to me. Yeah. And so I, I will concede this much. I think of the sort of block in, in the world of blockbuster entertainment and sequels and reboots that I'm calling decadent. Um, the Marvel movies set the highest, the highest standard for how that can be done well. And I think anyone who reads the book will find that I have much more of a bone to pick, a lot more, you know, anti-decadence anger, if you will, with where, uh, J.J. Abrams and Disney ended up taking the Star Wars movies than I do with what the Marvel Extended Universe was able to create. Um, that being said, um, I think that the, what, what sort of the Marvel takeover has done is one, act as a kind of vacuum force for incredibly talented directors and actors and obviously all the people who make special effects and everything else, um, into a set of stories that are a great mythology in certain ways, but also have a kind of fundamental um, superficiality that the movies struggle to escape. Um, like, my my feeling about the Marvel movies is similar to my feeling of where a lot of sort of young, you know, what gets called young adult literature and especially young adult fantasy ends up in sort of imitation of the Harry Potter novels, which is that it's perpetually sort of operating at the level of a sort of 14-year-old who's on the cusp of adolescence, isn't a child anymore, is sort of, you know, coming into their adult powers. And that's an incredibly powerful moment, and it's why origin stories are, superhero origin stories are so cool, and it's, you know, it's why the moment when Harry Potter gets invited to Hogwarts is, is so resonant with readers. But, you know, there have now been 
literally like dozens of Marvel movies, and they really struggle to advance past that point. There's, you know, you don't go to Marvel movies for romance and adult sexuality. Um, with a few arguable exceptions, uh, you don't really go to them for, um, sort of political dramas. And I think, I just think very quickly, even at that high level of quality over the course of so many movies that have become so dominant in the Hollywood ecosystem, they've become, yeah, kind of, you know, entertaining, but repetitive and superficial, um, in a way that the biggest adult Hollywood movies of 20 or 30 years ago weren't necessarily. But again, I want to concede to all Marvel fans listening <laughs> that they are better than Star Wars Rise of Skywalker by a long shot. Well, so right, because it seems like you were advancing two arguments that are, were getting to me a little bit entangled. And one is mm -hmm. that... um it's a lack of imagination to use these characters who were created decades ago. And then the other is that the execution is just not that good. And I, I totally agree with you that the execution of particularly the force awakens and the rise of Skywalker. Um, I, I mean, I, I just thought were thunderously dull. Um, but it, it seems to me that if they, they could make star Wars movies that were better, um, and then, uh, like, what would be the relevance of wh how many decades ago the characters were created? And what difference is there between telling, uh, a Captain America story or a Luke Skywalker story, story versus a King Arthur story or a Robin Hood story that people have been retelling for hundreds of years? Um, in a way that I don't think indicates decadence particularly. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And my attempted answer is that there is, for something to not be decadent, you need a certain level of reinvention from one telling of the story to another, right? And at the highest level, you get re a reinvention that produces, like, greatness, right? Like, Shakespeare's plays are, for the most part, reworkings of either history stories that were well-known to people in his audience or other people's plays. You know, there was an original Hamlet, supposedly, that Shakespeare reworked. Um but the reworking was transformational and created some of the great greatest works of art in the Western world. And I don't expect quite that from uh, my science fiction movies in the early 21st century. But, I mean, just think about, like, the original Star Wars, right? The original Star Wars had this clear um, relationship to all kinds of forms from classic Hollywood, whether it was, you know, Kurosawa or um, Flash Gordon, or even Mimi Riefenstahl and her Nazi propaganda films, which are sort of sort of evoked in the very end of um, of the original Star Wars. Uh, so it was a it was not some work of utter and total originality. It was a pastiche, uh, but it was a pastiche that did something incredibly novel for 1970s audiences and put all these things together in a new and interesting way. And I think what Lucas tried to do in the prequels was um, a sort of a deepening of that, right? I mean, the, the prequels are, in my view, total failures, but in certain ways, um, you can you can admire the ambitions even as you roll your eyes at the ex execution. Lucas then wanted to sort of take his gee whiz swashbuckling original Star Wars and then sort of deepen it into a kind of Shakespearean tragedy about the fall of a republic that would evoke stories of, you know, ancient Rome uh, and failed. But then after that failure, what happens with uh, the Abrams Disney movies is they're, n they're not doing pastiche. They're not sort of mixing and matching elements. They're not trying to dramatically reinvent the stories, even if they do, you know, change the genders of the characters and so on. They're just telling the same stories beat for beat in a less entertaining way. Um, and that, that to me is what sort of separates, um, decadence from just, you know, the reimagining and reinvention of classic stories that, um, you know, that sort of is just part of how human societies tell stories, right? I mean, in, in the Arthurian world, you wouldn't want to, um, just, you know, take Mallory's Mort D'Arthur and just literally go beat by beat every time you want. I, I was actually just rereading Mary Stewart's um, Merlin novels, The Crystal Cave and The Hollow Hills and 
The Last Enchantment, which I think are a really interesting example of how you take something like the Arthurian mythos and do something really interesting with it by telling the story, in that case, from Merlin's perspective. And, you know, and there are efforts to do that. I mean, the, you know, the terrible, the terrible King Arthur movie that, uh, came out a few years ago, right, with uh, Jude Law as Vortigern and, um, you know, Chav King Arthur, so <laughs> they called it. You know, it's it's not that there isn't some desire to do that. It's that um, I, I think it's just harder under current cultural conditions for reasons that are sometimes a little bit hard to figure out, but I think are are definitely there. Well, I have a lot more I could say about that, but uh, I have a couple more things I want to get to before we run out of time um, from the book. So we'll, you said we'll I mean, save we'll save the deep dive into the mythos of Camelot for another. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, but so you say you point one of the just is just a, a quote from the the book. You say uh, in Japan, forty five percent of women ages sixteen to twenty four and a quarter of men were quote not interested in or despised sexual contact. And you make the point a couple times that Japan seems to be the future in a way that that's where all societies are kind of heading toward. And I was just wondering if you think that that is like from a science fiction standpoint, is that the future or like how plausible of a future is that where sex just becomes less and less important to people and becomes more and more mediated by technology, like in um, demolition man or something like that. (laughs) The most prophetic movie (laughs) of the, of the late 20th century. I mean, yeah, I think that's, that's certainly the trend right now. Um, and I think it's enough of, it's become enough of the trend in the U.S. and Western Europe that, um, well, there, you know, there, there used to be a thing where people would write articles, um, in Western media about some particular aspect of Japanese culture, the, you know, the role of video games, um, or, you know, relations between the sexes or the declining birth rate and the tone of the article would be isn't japan weird and i definitely think we've reached a point i mean that was always sort of you know orientalist and condescending in certain ways but i think we can reach a point where we can definitely say it's not weird it's a clear it's a clear it's part of a clear trajectory that um something about the current phase of uh, Western culture is taking us towards. And so, you know, the last 15 years in the U.S. have seen a decline in actual sexual intercourse, right? And you've got similar data for Germany and Finland and various countries in Western Europe. And, I mean, basically the pattern seems to be that we had a period of sort of major destabilization in sexual relations um, in the 60s and 70s, where you had divorce rates skyrocket, and you had, you know, rising rates of premarital sex, out-of-wedlock births, teenage births, all of these things that cultural conservatives then became very concerned about. But over the last 20 years, I think with sort of an assist from the internet, we've had a kind of stabilization in some of those trends, the divorce rate has dropped, uh, the out-of-wedlock birth rate has stabilized, the abortion rate has gone down, and what we have instead is a kind of retreat from intimacy period with lower marriage rates, um, people having less sex, people having fewer kids. And I don't think that's all the consequence of the Internet, but I think there's definitely something happening where you know, virtual life is more navigable than non-virtual life for a lot of people, but also uh, makes it harder than for people to shift it back into real life. And I think for men especially that, um, you know, the age of immersive pornography has changed something in how men seek out sex and romance in the real world um, and has had, you know, at least at the margins, a kind of deadening um erectile dysfunction ish impact i mean you mentioned a couple times the prospect of uh sort of like bat grown babies or something like that do you think that we might be headed for a future in which babies are just grown in vats and raised by robots and people don't really have sex with each other and that just becomes the new normal for society I mean, that's the Brave New World Endgame, right? And that's right. The Huxley's novel starts with they're visiting the decanting facility where babies are grown and decanted out of vats. Um, and I guess, well, one, 
my what we were talking about earlier, my skepticism about sort of the pace of technological progress makes me think that the VAT is at least a little ways from being invented. Um, and I think that there is enough, uh, I think that the desire for, um, sort of natural seeming, organic seeming, holistic seeming human experiences would mean that even in a world where we had that kind of breakthrough, there would still be a big part of the culture that wanted to go on having babies the old fashioned way. Um, it's, I mean, it's not as if, you know, the trends I'm talking about are not comprehensive just because you have low fertility rates doesn't mean that no babies are being born and people still what's striking about the the low fertility trend is that people men and women both still say they want to have um enough kids to have basically which would lead to an above replacement fertility rate but something is happening in how they meet and marry and get pair off this or something's happening in the economic structure that's preventing that from happening so I don't want to say that we're headed all the way to the the dystopia um, or the utopia, I guess, if you prefer for some people. But I think that the trend of the last 20 years is in a kind of Huxleyan direction where, you know, in Brave New World, he basically imagines that, you know, people get their sexual experiences from what he calls the feelies, which are basically virtual reality pornography. Um, and he imagines that people take Soma to smooth out the sort of anomie and unhappiness of of their lives and that has its equivalent in a, you know a variety of legal and illegal medications that we've developed to manage our experience of modernity so i think that's I, i'm doubtful that we'll get to the ultimate destination and i think that you know the closer you get the more cultural resistance there would be um but i think that's the trend of the last generation yes Right. I mean, it's interesting that you you describe that as either a dystopia or a utopia. I mean, sort of one of my feelings is that one of the reasons to read science fiction is to be able to look at different societies with a less um, sort of biased view or sort of, you know, parochial view. And that, um, you know, I, I feel like so many people would look at the scenario of, you know, the babies are grown in vats and people have VR sex all the time as just it's bad because it's um, unfamiliar or different or new. And I feel like I would want people to look at it on its merits. And I'm, I'm not persuaded it would be a good thing, but I'm just saying, you know, it, it seems to me to, to be a good capability for people to have to be able to look at a scenario like that and judge it on its own merits rather than just reject it because it's unfamiliar. But um, I don't know what your, if you have a different take on that. I mean, I think that, I think that is, that impulse is real where the new is just unfamiliar and sort of judged on that basis, judged negatively. At the same time, I think it coexists with a pretty strong tendency in our society to assume that the new is inevitable, right? And so, you know, the, the sense, for instance, if I, you know, if you're worried about like the impact of, um, growing up growing up online on kids the assumption as well we've made, we've had this technological development and even if there are problems with it there's just no going back and so i could imagine a scenario where we get the baby vat grower and some people complain but the cultural attitude is well we have this invention where we obviously <laughs> we're obviously going to use it um but there's definitely a way in which i well this book is in certain ways more sort of futurist and more pro-technological change than um, you might expect from my sort of affinity for Tolkien. But I think I retain enough of the Tolkien-esque spirit that the visions of the future that I find most um, most exciting and interesting are visions of the future in which we are able to do new and remarkable things that we can't do right now, like, you know, explore the further reaches of space, but also retain some version of the human nature that's been ours since we, uh, you know, exited apedom um, for, for um, you know, whatever the Homo sapiens experience has been. Um, so given a choice, I would much rather have human beings as we know them um, terraforming Mars than human beings here on Earth sort of 
transitioning, you know, Yuval Harari style into a post-homo sapiens species. Have you ever thought about writing any science fiction yourself? I have certainly thought about it, yes. <laughs> uh, and I can't promise that I don't have a... I, I think I would be more likely to write fantasy. Um, and I can't promise you that I don't have a secret fantasy novel in a drawer or a folder on my computer <laughs> right, right now. But, you know, a, a, a colleague of mine has joked that every political journalist is either a failed politician or a failed novelist. And for now, I'm firmly in the failed novelist uh, camp. Because, I mean, some of these um, scenarios that you sketch out in the book are, are basically science fiction scenarios. And I think very original, um, interesting ones. So, I mean, you talk about there's one sort of future you sketch out where immigrant communities start seceding and forming their own microstates, and then America gets yep. ruled by a merger of Silicon Valley and the military. <laughs> yep. No, that's a science fiction novel right there. You're right. Um, and that's, I mean, I think that is, I, I'm, I'm very interested in sort of transformed scenarios for the the human future. And one of the arguments I make in the book is that, in fact, what I'm describing as our decadence is might be pretty sustainable, and you might not get over the next few generations the kind of transformations that people expect. Like, you know, we might flash forward 50 years, and the U.S. and China and sort of the world order still looks vaguely the way it looks right now, and people maybe live a tiny bit longer, and we have a little slightly better treatments for cancer, and our, our Oculus Rift headsets are more amazing, but the world won't have changed that dramatically. Um, but yeah, I'm also really interested in what are the disjunctive forces, technological, political, religious, that could bring decadence to an end and usher in something either something more frightening, like a, you know, a landscape ravaged by the coronavirus, hypothetically, <laughs> um, or something that looks more like um, a, a renaissance or an age of exploration. Yeah, and then the other one I want to mention is you sort of sketch out the scenario where Europe and Africa merge into one society with a technological and religious character similar to the Marvel Black Panther uh, movie. Could you just... Um... Say quickly, yeah. like where the. I mean, to, to to be clear, I was I'm I'm pretty skeptical that you will actually get a kind of you know Wakandan style elite ruling over some your African future. But I do think that if you're looking for a point of stress and transformation in the world order as we know it, that the relationship between Europe, which is one of the richest areas in the world, one of the oldest areas in the world, getting older, its population is likely to shrink, and then not so much the Muslim Middle East, um, although that obviously has its own fraught relationship to Europe, but Sub-Saharan Africa, where which is the one part of the world where population growth is still surging. And, you know, by 2080, you might have 500 million Europeans and 3.5 billion Africans, whereas 100 years ago, Europe had more people than Africa. And that just seems like a really unstable equilibrium. And it makes me think that some version of, um, and I'm not the first person to use this term, but some version of Eurafrica is coming. And we should want that encounter to be um, sort of an, an opportunity for cultural fusion and transformation and creativity. It is admittedly just as likely that it will be a collision, maybe exacerbated by climate change that leads to political collapse, um, or the formation of sort of new microstates in the world Mediterranean Sea, for instance. I mean, but it seems like you see that as kind of the most plausible way for Christianity to have a real resurgence in terms of the number of adherents. Is that is that right? I mean, I think right now the two most interesting places, if you're looking at the future of Christianity, are Africa and China. Um, and they're obviously entangled in certain ways, given China's deep investment in East Africa, especially. Um, but in Africa, you have this incredibly fast-growing society that has, you know, that that is not becoming less religious so far as it modernizes and has incredibly potent, you know, Catholic and Protestant both, but maybe especially sort of evangelical forms of Christianity that 
in some way or another are going to change Europe, right? The future of European Christianity is probably going to be defined by immigrants from Africa over the next 50 years. Um, so that's the African piece of the story. And then in China, you, you know, in, it's a little harder to tell because, of course, religion generally is restricted and in certain ways persecuted in China. Um, so it's hard to get clear numbers on the number of Christians and so on. Uh, but there's clearly a general re religious resurgence in China relative to 40 or 50 years ago. And there are ways in which Christians in China look a bit like Christians did under the Roman Empire, where they're sort of intermittently persecuted, um, but they are sort of concentrated in the urban middle classes and may end up having, you know, at some point a lot more political influence um, in the way that Christians in the Roman Empire ended up having than we would expect from um, the Politburo's Bureau's persecution of them right now. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, it's pretty common in science fiction for, to assume that religion is just going to kind of um, atrophy into non-existence. I mean, that's basically what happens in, in Star Trek. And I was just curious. Not in, not in, not in Dune, though, man. That's <laughs> why, that's, that's why, you know, you've got the Orange Catholic Bible and the, you know, the Zen Sunni wanderers and so on. I mean, I, I do think that's, I, I agree that there's sort of a style of sci-fi, um, where there's an assumption of atrophy, uh, and there's a bit of that in, in Asimov, where sort of religion crops up, like when he tells the story of, you know, the, galactic empires fall and the foundations rise, it's sort of assumed that, you know, there's sort of this transition where you have to have a religion that own, that the elites don't believe in, but it's sort of it's useful for managing the masses. But then there's, yeah, then there's also, I think, a certain kind of science fiction from Dune to Battlestar Galactica um, on TV that takes religion more seriously and assumes that some sort of transformed forms of religiosity um, would endure even if we were sort of a spacefaring species um, or maybe even a sort of genetically transformed species. Um, and, and that, I think, you know, I'm a religious person myself, so obviously I find that kind of science fiction more convincing. But I also think, you know, it wouldn't have to be, I mean, I'm interested in the future of Christianity because I'm a Christian, but one of the interesting things about the current moment in the U.S. is watching sort of non-Christian and quasi-Christian forms of spirituality sort of float around and, you know, the revival of interest in astrology and witchcraft. And then also, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain way, there are certain ways in which, um, I think some of the sort of singulatarian impulses in Silicon Valley have elements of religion to them. Um, and, you know, I think there's a good science fiction novel to be written about a, you know, it would be a Christian sci-fi, but about a, a tech billionaire who's convinced that he's made contact with, with the aliens, whichever aliens are, you know, sending the flying things around for our fighter pilots to look <laughs> at. And then it turns out that the aliens are either actually fairies or actually demons. Um, so it would collapse, collapse science fiction into fantasy, which is, you know, a very, sort of Tolkienian thing to do, maybe. Yeah, or, or C.S. Lewis. Um, right, yeah, it's that's very, yeah, it's a bit, that's sort of a ripoff of that hideous strength, you're right. So, yeah, I'm, de I'm decadent too, man. Even, <laughs> even, even my own science fiction ideas are decadent. Uh, what I was kind of wondering, though, is uh, did you ever find the, um, the sort of anti-religious or um, overtly liberal aspects of something like Star Trek alienating, just as a, as a fan? Um, I mean, I feel like I watched The Next Generation in a phase where I was young enough not to be annoyed by it, I guess. Probably, you know, if I went back and watched some of the preachier episodes in the Roddenberry and to Picard part of the canon, um, I might be annoyed by them. But, you know, I think it's, I think there is... I admire certain things, obviously, about the Roddenberry worldview, the sort of, you know, optimism to the stars spirit, and that sort of makes me willing to give, forgive some of the more, to my mind, absurd elements of, like, the Federation as this, you know, sort of 
secular utopia where everyone's in, you know, in the same jumpsuits and so on. But then also Deep Space Nine, I guess, which came on when I was a teenager, had a little more religion and still tended to reduce it to, um, to sort of, um, kind of science fiction explanations. Um, but, but took, took religion, took sort of the, the persistence of religion a little bit more seriously than, uh, the next generation did. I'd say. I mean, you mentioned that, um, I forget the exact quote, you said something to the effect of most journalists or political journalists are failed politicians or novelists. Yep. Um, well, one or the, one or the other. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you know a lot of, um, science fiction people like in the world of political journalism or politics? I mean, I'm sort of thinking, like, I know, you know, Paul Krugman has said that he got into economics after reading Asimov's. Uh, foundation yep. series. I, I've, he- I've heard right. that Ted Cruz is a big Star Trek fan. I don't know if there's any anyone else you know of that I might be missing. Um, I mean, I think there is, you know, as you might expect, the the libertarian world, the people who write for places like Reason Magazine, tend to be pretty into um, sci-fi. Uh, you know, a friend of mine, Peter Suderman, who writes about movies a fair amount, in addition to writing about public policy for reason um, is is a good example of that. Um, and then there are other people who sort of are are sort of on the borderlines between these different worlds. Um, I'm friends with a guy named Alan Jacobs, who's an English professor at Baylor, um, who writes a lot about sort of, you know, religion and American culture. And his uh, his his most recent book was about a bunch of um, sort of Christian intellectuals in World War Two. Uh, but he has a strong interest in um, sort of fantasy fiction as it relates to modernity and like the role of sort of the appeal of fantasy in a disenchanted age. Um, he's not quite a political journalist, but he would be an example of somebody worth worth reading who straddles my world and yours, I guess. Yeah, no, I'll definitely look into him. Yeah. Um, I guess probably the last thing I'll have time to bring up here is that you um, you sort of end the book by saying that the um, cure for decadence really has to be exploring outside Earth, you know, going into outer space. And I was just curious if you have any um, any ideas about a roadmap for how we make that happen. No, what I mean, not I am, you know, I I in no way have a roadmap. And you know, Peter Thiel, the very famous scourge of decadence, wrote a <laughs> generally favorable review of my book where he ended by saying. You know, that you, you're never going to defeat decadence with sort of generalized yearning. And so when Douthat ends his book by pining for a warp drive, he's actually, um, you know, he's he sort of, you're sort of reinforcing decadence because a warp drive is so technically beyond us at the moment that in fact you need definite objectives. Um, so I don't have definite objectives except to say that I am a, fan of the sort of definite objective approach that someone, you know, for all his weirdness like Elon Musk is taking. Um, I think, you know, the the goal of something like commercial space flight is, I think, a reasonable near-term goal to sort of put a form of extra Earth exploration on a, a plausible financial footing, even if it's just sort of, you know, subsidized by rich people who want to go into space. Um, but I mean, I, I do think that there are ways in which, you know, it, it is not surprising that, um, well, I'll bring together the, the religious and the science fiction, right? So the, you know, the religious narrative of the Western world, the Judeo-Christian narrative starts with the book of Genesis and with God saying, fill the earth and subdue it. And what's interesting about our era is that for the first time that we know of in human history, we've actually done that. And so I don't think it's surprising that this is sort of a moment of um, total uncertainty about where our society is going. Um, and I, my, my assumption is that, you know, some kind of decadence becomes inevitable if you reach the end of your exploration of the physical world and don't find somewhere new to go. Um, and that that is sort of why, well, it's why as someone who, believes that history actually has a purpose and that we are here for some reason. I'm, as much as I don't know how to build the warp drive, I do sort of expect that um, 
if the end of the world doesn't arrive, eventually we will actually get into those vastnesses that surround us uh, right now. I certainly hope so. I think that's a really good note to end on. So we've been speaking with Ross Douthat about his new book, The Decadent Society. So, Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Ross Douthat for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank the new anthology Avatars, Inc. for sponsoring today's show. Learn more over at avatars.inc. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.